I want to welcome you again to Downtown Presbyterian Church. If I have not met you, my name is Sam Taff. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and that was Chandler Mockamel, another one of our pastors leading us in worship. Since early fall, we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, and in it you see uh, Jesus interact with all sorts of people and uh, from a variety of backgrounds. And some of those people are desperately ill. Uh, some of them are desperate in their sin. You, meet, you see Jesus talk to someone possessed by demons, uh, someone who's had a discharge of blood for over a decade, uh, someone whose daughter has died. Uh, you see Jesus talk to people who hate him. Uh, here we're going to see Jesus talk to someone who's come to be known as the rich young ruler. In this passage, all we're told is that he's rich. In the Gospel of Luke, we're told that he's a ruler in the synagogue. Uh, In Matthew, we're told that he is young. I I don't know if you've ever had one of these moments before. Maybe you've like sat down for an appointment with someone to help you think through these things. Maybe you've just been daydreaming about them, but likely at some point you've thought about um, where do you want to be in whatever, Five years, 10 years, 15 years. And, you know, if you're younger, these meetings might happen with like a guidance counselor at school or a parent. Maybe in high school, think about a college counselor or later on career coach. And you think, okay, where where do I want to be? What do I want to do? Okay, I want to go to this college. Okay, well, I I need to get working now. Uh, Or I'd love to go to this grad school or get this job. Uh, I'd love to look different than I look right now. Okay, time to get to work. I would love to have this nest egg at this point. And we have, we set for ourselves different benchmarks to, to help us get there. In the passage we're about to read, this rich, young, religious man, uh, by all accounts, on outward appearances, has met all the benchmarks. Uh, he's rich for one, and he's religious, which in our day and age, we tend to look on rich religious people with suspicion. That would not have been the case in this man's society. He would have been really well respected. He was not just, he didn't just go to the synagogue. He was, he was a ruler. Might have even been a member of the Sanhedrin, like the ruling party. And not only that, he's done all this while he's young. He's the person you look at and you think, oh my gosh, wow. And we don't know how young, but like he's doing all that and he's only that age? Crazy. And yet he is really insecure about where he stands with God. So much so that he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a question that probably children in the synagogue that this man attended would have been able to answer. And yet, for all the outward accomplishments that this man has, he's not sure where he stands. And so he goes to Jesus and says, how do I inherit eternal life? And you'll see phrases like that throughout the passage. They're all getting at the same thing. Jesus will refer to treasures in heaven. Uh, the passage talks about being saved. How do I know I am right with God? How can I know God loves me? I don't know where you are this morning, but likely there are things inside of you, 
or maybe things that have happened, or maybe things that you've accomplished, and you've been left wondering, is this it? Is there something else? I don't feel like I'm enough. I don't feel like that was enough. We're going to see Jesus this morning speak to this man and to us. He's going to confront. He's going to confront this man. He's going to confront his trust in his own righteousness. He's going to confront this man's trust in his wealth. Uh, And lastly, he's going to comfort us. And so let's read Matthew. Nope, we're in Mark. Uh, We're going to read Mark. Uh, Chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters, mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, We thank you this morning for your word. And Lord, we ask that you would do with it what you do to this man. Lord, that you would confront us where we need to be confronted. That you would comfort us where we need to be comforted. We ask all of this in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. Uh, a number of years ago, we had a, a deck at our house, and when we bought the house, the deck was not in great shape, and it slowly got into worse shape. And I remember having someone come and look at the beams, and they're kind of explaining to me what, what they were going to do and why they needed to do it. And um, some of them were obviously rotten. And he was like, yeah, wood rot is pr- pretty easy to spot. Uh, but, but if they're termites, he said, that's a different story. Like, like sometimes you can re- look at it piece of wood or a beam and see it's really obvious that, thing, that this thing's going to eat in a way. Uh, but if it's just on the inside, the outside can look great. And he said, the thing I do is if I suspect termites, I take a drill and I drill in. 
And the farther you go in, uh, if there are termites, the more you, you'll, you'll see the wood just kind of fall out. Not, not like drill bit pieces, but like actual, like, just like flakes of wood. It'll look really flaky. It'll look different. But you have to drill in to see that because you don't see it on the outside. This man coming to Jesus is coming, and he's not coming like other righteous people sometimes come to Jesus. He's not coming to test Jesus. He's coming because he really has questions for Jesus. But he's coming with a fair amount of trust in his outward appearance, in his outward obedience. This man, as we mentioned before, would have had the respect of lots of people. There were likely people in his town that were very jealous of this man. And yet he comes to Jesus and asks Jesus a question that we think, oh my gosh, this is like the type of question that like, if you're ever thinking about like sharing your faith, it's like, oh man, put it up on a tee. Like no one just comes up and asks you, hey, do you by any chance know how I inherit eternal life? And you know, you, you might have an idea of how you would answer that question. And my guess is, maybe if you're even trained, likely the way you would answer that question is not the way Jesus answers that question here. Jesus immediately says, Hey, why do, you, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Immediately, Jesus perceives that this man's whole idea of goodness is off course. And this is why he directs him immediately to the commandments. You know the commandments, Jesus says. And he rattles off most of the second half of what we call the Ten Commandments. Honor your father and mother. Do not defraud. Do not steal. Oh yeah, all these I've kept since my youth. Why would Jesus direct a man who seems outwardly obedient, asking about eternal life to the law? This will come up again and again as you watch Jesus interact with people. Jesus is after this man's heart. The man's coming to him saying, Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus immediately perceives, okay, this man thinks he can do something to make himself right with me, to give himself a sense of security. And so he, he directs him to the commandments. Now, why would he do that? If you read through the Bible, uh, God gives commandments in, in all sorts of fashions, in all sorts of places, but you know, the main way, the most famous passages being Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, 10 commandments. But before God gives those commandments, right before it, he says, I've brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Therefore, this is how you should live. So even the most famous set of commandments, God is saying, these are not given in order that I might deliver you. They're given because I've delivered you. Never are the commandments given in such a way they say, if you obey, you will be right with God. It's a way to experience God's blessing. They're commands given to us in love. And so Jesus directs him to these commandments because one of the purposes of the commandments is to reveal our heart. And that is what Jesus is after here. And what he's sensing in this man, he's correct, is that this man's heart is trusting in his own obedience. Genesis 6 God looks at humanity and he'll say, there's no one righteous. No, not one. Uh, Paul will pick up this theme, talking about the law. 
in Romans 3. He said, by no by works of the law, no man will be justified. Jesus is getting, trying to get this man to see, you may feel insecure. The answer to that insecurity is not further obedience. The answer to that insecurity is not your goodness. That's why he says God alone is good. God's law is good. Your hope for being saved is not not what you can do or I can do, but in God's goodness. And so he drives him to the law to begin to strip down the confidence he has, to to begin to strip down the trust he has in his own ability, in his own obedience. There's been a fun trend over the past 10 years among celebrities around Christmas time. Uh, you'll see this happen a lot of times it's at Walmart. At Walmart, you know, you can buy something and not pay for the whole thing right away. So if you want to buy an awesome TV, $100 now, $2,700 later. Who knows when I'll pay it? It's a really nice TV. Um, layaway. Well, five years ago, Tyler Perry in Atlanta goes into a Walmart and paid off 1,500 layaway accounts for a total of $434,000. Just did it, you know, just went in, just chose a Walmart, went in, didn't didn't know who was there. Um, Now, if let's say one of those people who had a layaway debt got wind of this. Let's say they had just bought an awesome TV the week before. They find out, oh, oh my gosh, this guy's about to, he's thinking about paying off debt. Let me go up and ask him what I need to do. Hey, what should I do so that you'll pay off my debt? Well, the answer probably, I'm not gonna put words in Tyler Perry's mouth, but it's a hypothetical situation. It's probably um, actually nothing. To, to receive this gift, you have to have debt. That's the requirement. What you need is debt. Jesus is trying to get this man to see that his problem is not merely just another commandment that he has not yet obeyed. His problem is actually much deeper than that. It's at a heart level and his heart is far from God. And he's getting him to see that he doesn't need to come to Jesus as an advisor. Jesus is trying to get him to see he needs God as a savior. So he tells him, go to the commandments. He's confronting his trust in his own goodness. And one of the ways he exposes this goodness is by actually confronting the man's trust in his wealth. (laughs) Because Jesus says, hey, uh, you know the commandments. And he goes on and lists them. And then the man says, yes, all these I've kept my youth. Immediately, Jesus says, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Why does he do that? Because he knows this man has trusted in his possessions. He knows this man loves his possessions more than he actually loves God. And you see this in verse 22. What does it say? The man was sorrowful. The man was grieved. Literally, he was grieving because he had great possessions. And he does not. Jesus invites him to follow him. And what does it say? He walked away. 
sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Jesus is showing him, you actually maybe are not as obedient as you thought. You have not made it past commandment number one. You have loved something more than God. This is why, and that is the reason he gets at him getting his belongings. Jesus is not saying, hey, you know what? The fact that you have all these things is bad. You should not have things. No, because if you, if you read through Scripture, it's really interesting. Scripture is chock full of people who have a lot of resources. Two years ago this summer, we, we did a series on the life of Abraham. One of the things you get is you read through the life of Abraham. We think of him for a lot of different reasons, better reasons. But one of the, one of the things that's true about Abraham, extremely wealthy, tons of land, tons of livestock, tons of servants. Joseph, in Genesis 37 through 50, rises to Pharaoh's court, very wealthy. In the New Testament, Joseph of Arimathea, who buys Jesus' tomb. There's a woman named Lydia in, in the church in Philippi, very well resourced. And yet God doesn't tell any of these people, go and sell what you have. Here, he's addressing this man because this is the thing that has gripped his heart. And God is after his heart. And he's saying the reason you feel so far, the reason you feel insecure is because your heart is far from me. Because isn't that true? That is always going to be the reality. If we are trusting in our own righteousness, is that we will feel insecure. Because deep down we know I can never do enough. There's not another thing that I can do to gain God. There's not another thing I can do to impress him. We all know we've fallen short. Therefore, if we're trusting in our ability, we will feel insecure like this man. And so Jesus says, go and sell all that you have because that is the thing that you are trusting in. And so if you're here this morning, the command for you may not be, oh man, I really need to re-examine my finances. But it might be. What is it right now that's gripping your heart more than Jesus? Jesus is after our heart. And so it may not be our next paycheck, but whatever it is that is keeping us and keeping our heart from Jesus, we need to be ruthless with. Jesus tells man, go, sell all that you have, give to the poor and follow me. What is it that you would be desperate if you lost? What would cause you great grief? What would cause you great sorrow if, you di- if all of a sudden tomorrow you woke up and you didn't have it? That will give you an idea of what you're trusting in. For this man, it was his wealth. For you, it, it could be the same thing. If you woke up tomorrow, stock market crash, oh my gosh, my retirement, what happened to it? You know, we can get anxious thinking about that. What if, what if I lost my physical ability? What, what if I lost the ability to do what I think I'm so good at? What if, what if I, I got some sort of disease that attacked my brain? I didn't have my intellect. I didn't have my social skills. Jesus is saying the answer to that question is actually a clue into what we are actually trusting in. And Jesus tells this man, I want you to attack it. 
I, I want you to get rid of it. What is it for you? Because my guess is, is that if you're a believer or not and you're here this morning, you've probably entertained trusting God. Some of you do trust God. But if you're on the fence, I think the dilemma you can find yourself in, and we find ourselves in this dilemma even as we try to follow Jesus, is I want to follow Jesus, or I want to follow Jesus more. And yet, there's these other things that I really, really like. Uh, there's these other things that, that I love. Uh, I want to love Jesus, and yet I don't really want to love him so much that like, it's going to interrupt or interfere with this stuff. C.S. Lewis, who you've probably heard quoted before, author, Cambridge, Oxford professor, faced the same dilemma. He got disenchanted with religion early in life, and he became a Christian, uh, and he talked about that, that, that experience of being on the fence. He had quickly come to realize that like, the meaning he was searching for, the satisfaction he was searching for, the joy he was searching for in this life could not be found in the things of this world he began to believe God, but he also knew that believing in God was going to interfere with his life. And he talks about this in a book called Surprised by Joy. And he said this, no word in my vocabulary expressed deeper hatred than the word interference. He did not want his life to be interfered with. But Christianity placed at the center what then seemed to me a transcendental interferer. Fancy word for a God who is king, who was actually, if he entrusts himself to him, going to interfere with his life and his loves. He knew, this, this C.S. Lewis says, I, I knew there was no region, even in the innermost depth of one's soul, which, could, which one could surround with a barbed wire fence and guard with a notice no admittance. Isn't that a great picture? Oh Lord, I want to follow you, but I also love my time and my comfort. Is there a way that I can follow you and please, I'm going to fence off this area over here. I would love, I mean, I would love to do all sorts of things for you. Please don't touch this. Please don't touch this relationship. please don't ask me to do something risky socially. Please don't ask me to do something risky financially. We have these areas where we don't, Lord, I want you, but I don't know if I want you here. C.S. Lewis says, and that's what I wanted. Some area, however small, of which I could say to all other beings, this is my business and mine only. What is the area of your life or your heart that you want to set up a barbed wire fence around? What's the area of your life where you probably know you need to bring to Jesus, but actually fear what his word might have to say about that area? It, it, it could be a relationship. Uh, it could be something in your schedule that you are prioritizing way too much. What is it for you? What, what, are, what are you trying to get God not 
to go into. Underneath that belief, when we have an area that we don't want God to come into, we actually view him in the same way that C.S. Lewis views him. Because if we only view God as a transcendental interferer, if our view of God is, okay, he created me, he made me, he's good, I'm not, I know that trusting him is really going to mess things up, then yes, why would anyone ever want to trust or follow that God? But Jesus wants to get in through that barbed wire because as we heard last week, Jesus doesn't want to just know us. He wants to marry us. He loves you. Isn't that amazing in this passage? This man approaches Jesus wrongly, has wrong thoughts about Jesus. And yet it says, as Jesus is saying this to him, if you look at verse 22 or verse 21, uh, Jesus looking at him, loved him. Jesus is saying this really hard thing to him in love. And he's speaking to you and to me this morning in love. That's the relationship he wants. He wants a marriage. He loves us and he desires that we love him. The problem is, is that we want his love and we, want to, we do want to love him, but not so much that it'll compete with these other loves that we have. One of the great privileges I have as a pastor is uh, getting to do weddings. Uh, I get to officiate weddings and do premarital counseling. And, you know, if, if it came up during premarital counseling that uh, one of the people said, you know, I, I love this person so much. I cannot wait to spend the rest of my life with them. However, uh, if this is going to work out, like weekends are still mine and finances that I, I don't, I don't think we're going to do anything there. Like I, I just kind of need to keep my budget. I don't think you're going to get much of that. Um, and also like Wednesday and Thursday nights, those are off limits. Cause that's kind of like my time. Wow. Okay. All of a sudden, like you're saying, I love this person. And yet there are all these other things that you actually clearly are saying you love more than this person. You would say, that's not, that's good. That, that's not good. That's probably a red flag, actually. Jesus loves you. And he is inviting you to love him back, to love him more than any other thing in this world. On some level, that is probably extremely attractive to you. And on another level, hearing that probably, you, you probably experience a level of anxiety. I'm supposed to love Jesus more than anything else in this world? Yeah. It's interesting. Jesus says lots of hard things like that in Scripture. Like, like if you just look at what Jesus says, whether it's the Sermon on the Mount or his interactions with people, he will make incredible demands of people. But what's interesting about this passage is he says something remarkable, and then right afterwards he says... This is really difficult. How difficult it is for someone with wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Then he gives this, you know, now famous illustration. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of God. You know what Jesus is saying? 
yes, you do. You need to love me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And whatever is getting in between that love, whatever you love more, you need to reprioritize. You need to love me more. And the disciples look at him and say, hold on. If this guy can't be saved, then who can? And Jesus says, you're right. The thing that you think is impossible, you're right, it is impossible. If you're sitting here this morning and thinking, okay, I need to leave. Okay, I need to go out and I, gosh, I love these other things. I just need to stop loving them. I, I, need, I need to start loving God more. Probably about five seconds after that, you'll think, holy cow, how do I do that? How can I possibly do that? And that's the comfort of this passage. Jesus confronts us. He also comforts us. He says, yes, this is really hard. And with man, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It is actually possible for someone who is sinful like you and for me to come into relationship with God. That seems impossible. Why would a holy God want anything to do with us? Much less than not only love that person, but change them. This passage is bookended by two other passages. Right before this, Jesus will say, the way life in the kingdom looks is like a child. And if you're gonna enter the kingdom of God, you need to come like a child. And then he gives this passage of all these ways that we are tempted to not come like a child. How do children come? Very needy, not embarrassed at all about their needs. How do we often try to come to God? Uh, not needy. Um, this man is, is showing how, how good he is and how obedient he is. And Jesus is inviting this man to come to him in need. In fact, that's the one thing he lacks. Jesus says, you lack one thing? What do you lack? Lack. You think you have everything. You don't perceive that you actually lack. Come like a child. The other end of this passage, right afterwards, Jesus is going to tell his disciples, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be delivered over, handed over to the authorities, crucified, and on the third day I will rise again. You see what he's doing? Come like a child. This passage right here, whew, it is really hard to come like a child. Sometimes we even try to craft an entire Christian life that looks nothing childlike. Why would I ever want to do that? Jesus follows that up by saying, I'm going to die. And in three days, I will rise again. Because you might be thinking here this morning, not only does that sound hard, it sounds miserable. Why would I give up the things that I love? And there's a lot of, a lot of ways we can answer that question. One is that those things are going to disappoint you. They're always going to leave you feeling insecure like this man. And you've experienced that. But why would I then trust Jesus instead and that's what's given to us in the passage right after this. The reason you can trust Jesus is because Jesus does exactly what he commands us to do. He who was, va who was wealthy beyond all measure became poor for our sakes, as we heard in the assurance of the gospel, so that in him we might become rich. The Savior who is inviting you to love him 
above all other things is also the Savior who laid down his life. And so you might be sitting here wondering, is it worth it? Is it worth it? The God of the universe thinks that you are worth it. He thinks that you're worth it so much so that he died for you. To save you out of the guilt of loving other things. But not only that, he saved you in order to inhabit you so that as you grow in your relationship with him, our hearts can change so that what might seem impossible to you where you are at in the Christian life, or maybe you're considering the Christian life, God promises not just to redeem you, but to inhabit you and to change you so that as you get to know his sacrifice and his generosity, all of a sudden now you begin to relate to your things differently. You can begin to give away resources, maybe even at an alarming rate, so much so that people might even be concerned. Why would you do that? Because you know the God of the universe. You know he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. He owns this whole world. It's all his anyway. And not only that, but he's given it up for you. And that can actually make us generous. It can make us gracious. We can give away time. We don't, know, we don't have to view people as merely ways to make ourselves happy, but we can view the world as people who are hungry and thirsty and insecure and in need of blessing, and we can go forth and give them that because God has done that for us in Christ Jesus. And he says something remarkable at the end of this passage. He says, whatever you give away, you will receive a hundredfold. We'll close with our hymn in a little bit. One of the things we're acknowledging there is that Jesus is our ultimate treasure. So whatever we give away, Jesus promises, whatever time we sacrifice, whatever money we give away, it will be worth it. He alone can satisfy our hearts. He alone died for you and for me. And he rose from the grave and one day will come again to make all things new. He's a God we can trust with our time, with our finances, with whatever it is that's gripping our heart. Like I said, not many places where Jesus says, wow, this is, what I just said is really difficult. And so if you're here this morning, you're wondering, okay, oh, I'm considering Christianity, or maybe I am a Christian, and I don't, there are lots of things I love. Where do I even begin? We are fools to think that we can do this on our own. We cannot. God has made us into a community. He's given us a church. I saw people joining. What a beautiful picture. We need help. And so I would encourage you to do two things with this. Pray this passage and ask the Lord, Lord, expose the things, confront the things that I am trusting in. And secondly, I would actually invite someone else into that conversation. Someone you trust, someone that can ask you, hey, what are you trusting in? Or hey, huh, you answered this way, but I know you. Seems that that's not the full story. Um, what a gift it would be for someone else in a world full of people who try to project that we have our act together. Meanwhile, we know that we're not. What a gift it would be for someone to hear, oh, wow, another person who actually struggles 
and needs redemption and, and wants to follow Jesus but, but, but needs help. What a gift that would be. That is risky and that is hard. And yet the Savior we follow is one who took at great cost, humanly speaking, great risk for you and for me. He loves you and he's made you for himself. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you have indeed made us. You do know, Lord Jesus, what we need. You also know all the ways in which we run to other things to satisfy that need. You know all the ways in which we try to pretend that we don't actually need you or need help or need community. Father, by your grace, would you confront us? Lord, would you speak truth into us that our hearts might be changed? And would you equip us to love you? We need your help and blessing, and we ask for it in Christ's name. Amen.